the old world is ending, and we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the structural problems in our world and the real solutions that we have today to transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse into a collaborative and sustainable futuristic society that serves all life. You may think it's an impossible dream, but the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Zachary Marlowe, Matt Holton, and Amanda Smith. And together, when we can move past this economic absurdity to come together and actualize our collective potential to create something completely new, we are Moneyless Society. This is part two of the discussion about globalization versus localization. Now, of course, I'm biased, but I'm telling you, if you haven't listened to part one yet, go back, do yourself a favor, and enjoy that beautifully articulated piece. The guys and our guest, Helena, do an amazing job of expounding on how globalization is an issue of systemic proportion. I mean, globalization plays a role in so many different things. It has many arms. Uh, it's a huge catalyst for scarcity. It plays a big role in climate change, and it fosters exploitation on many levels on a global scale. I'm always reminded of a Jacques Presto quote when I look at something of this magnitude, um, of this, of this, with such entrenched irrationality. Like, there is no reason for our food chain to be this convoluted. Uh, and so Jacques Presto would probably have said, this shit's got to go. Whether you're concerned with the cartels that terrorize indigenous farms so we can eat avocados, or with immigrants who cross the border hoping to make enough cash to take care of their families on tobacco farm. Maybe it's you're worried about the source of your food. You have no idea how many miles it traveled. You don't know what it was treated with. Simply, you don't know the source. Maybe you're worried about climate change. Globalization plays a huge factor considering we ship and truck and fly food around the world, sometimes one product more than once, just so it can end up on the shelf in front of you. But how do we effectively reduce our footprint and equitably feed everyone without reducing diversity and without reducing our working relationship with the earth? Now, some would say biotechnology is the answer, which is essentially the marriage of technology and ecology on a conscious level. I'm a fan of that. Others would say that an entirely holistic approach is the only way However, we as a society that's in a race against time chooses to move forward, we must keep in mind that systems require more than one area of focus. Localization is but one aspect of the remedy, and whatever we do, we must be willing to take it far enough to make a difference. So we talk a lot about culture, I, you know, in, in this episode and, and just in general on this show, I think. Um, and, and also kind of systems and, you know, kind of psychology as well, why people do the things we do, how they're influenced by the systems around them and the structures, uh, you know, operant conditioning, things like that uh, in daily life. And I feel like a lot of culture that people experience, even older cultures, too, around the world, uh, you know, they're 
they're influenced by their environment, by the people around them, and also a lot of the time by their economic mode of production or what they're actually producing on a daily basis, right? The, the work that they're doing, um, the traditions that they have a lot of the time, even for like harvests in particular, uh, I, I feel. Um, and I, I, feel, I think a lot of these traditions go back a long way as well. Some of these are very deeply rooted in spirituality and kind of mysticism and things like that too. And, and a lot of them have kind of carried over into modern day um, and and I feel like some of these cultures, as wonderful and as beautiful as they are, they, they they kind of stand in contrast to technology just in general today. And, and what I mean by that is, say you have these you know beautiful cultures like in Ladakh and, and other places where they've grown their own food right for generations and centuries and whatnot, right? And it's how do you how how does that interact with i mean not even necessarily globalization or commoditization or anything like that but even just technology can let's say let's say they have these machines out now called farmbot right and and you can program these machines to plant whatever crops you want in a space you know a designated space like 4 by 12 or 4 by 20 or or whatever and they're pretty cool machines honestly i want one <laughs> It doesn't mean that I don't like enjoy getting my hands dirty and getting in the farm and everything. But I also I'm 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 kind of a you know a technophile. I like technology. I like you know cool automated systems and things like that. And and honestly, it's kind of one of the things we explore a lot on this show is how to automate systems like that. How to automate um, regenerative agriculture in particular is a big one for me. I don't know if you've seen the movie Kiss the Ground. I saw that movie lately. Totally blew my mind just about how important regenerative agriculture is. How 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 much uh, carbon it can sequester into the ground, how much of a useful tool it can be in fighting climate change. Um, but I also, I, I agree with you as well. It's a very spiritually nurturing uh, process as well to be to be more connected to with the land and seeds and growing your own food and things like that. And I like to think that there's a happy medium somewhere in between where you can still be connected to the land and growing your own food and practicing regenerative agriculture, but also utilizing technology to a degree uh, to help you along with those things and eliminate maybe some of the extra labor in places. Um, just kind of essentially make the tasks a little bit, you know, uh, a little less laborious, a little more time free up a little more time to where people can have time for other things essentially i mean we're not necessarily talking like a star trek society <laughs> quite yet where everybody you know gets to do whatever they want all day and there's no money at all and and uh and everything is just totally automated and it's 500 years in the future this is kind of more like maybe a you know here and now a realistic sort of thing i mean what if these cultures might incorporate a farm bot would they <laughs> you know would they still be able to hold on to their ancient traditions in such a way to incorporate some of these new technologies and automation and things like that? Or do you think that would contribute towards the elimination of some of these cultures? And is it direct, is it direct conflict with that sort of thing? Yeah, I think that we've really got to be very, very um, careful to step back and look at the bigger picture and distinguish between technologies and mega technological systems. So I think that when we're talking now about the farm bot, we are talking about dependence on technologies that come out of a corporate system that come with a huge price tag. However, I certainly believe that technology that would be in the service of society 
not owned by these mega corporations could work. However, I'm very, very worried about the combination now between this push for regenerative agriculture and the push to monitor carbon. I see both of them as coming from big business. I see that um, the organic movement grew from the bottom up, took years and years, and people whom I knew very well, I was involved with them in Europe, in North America, and so on, worked really hard to persuade enough people and governments of the need to reduce chemicals, to restore the soil, to work. And organics got co-opted um, as sustainable has because we've, we haven't been aware of, again, the economic structures that have allowed, not just allowed, that have obliged governments to use our taxes to subsidize global deregulated business while taxing and squeezing through regulation every place-based business. And so that what, what's happened in farming is after the Second World War, these supposedly cheap fossil fuels were used. They were never cheap. They, they entailed massive wars, loss of life, but they come into the market artificially cheap. So really since the Second World War, we do not have technologies that have been brought in in the service of human beings. We have technologies that have been brought in in the service of profit. And that's what's happened with genetic manipulation. We had people experimenting with seeds for thousands of years, breeding new crops and new animals, you know, hybrids that work very well. That is fundamentally different from having mega corporations with billions, investing billions to get young people at university to experiment with things that will bring in further profit. Every time you have giant investments, you have giant sums that are gonna grow by extracting more wealth from our governments, from our societies. And the wealth they're now extracting, as we know, is about knowledge, is data, is being in control of every flow of information. And that's happened with the help of the internet. The internet hasn't helped the flow of information that is needed to secure, restore, renew, regenerate soils, seeds, societies. This technology has not been a tool for that. We have to use this tool now, we're using it in order to get a bigger picture out in order to put pieces together so people will step back and have clarity about, yes, I think, you know, what you're talking about is when you talk about these traditional cultures, you're basically talking about communities around the world that have been marginalized for hundreds of years and more recently, even more marginalized through modern media. What happened in Tibet as modern media comes in and tells young children that they are absolutely wrong to be associated with the land, to be, you know, in some rural, dirty place and to have that, those quaint clothes, you know, you'd be an idiot to put those clothes on. You're just going to be laughed at. You're going to have to put on that modern t-shirt. Now, so what you're talking about with tradition is not particularly attractive because you're talking about people who have been, you know, felt 
you know, that they've been, you know, sort of seen as inferior and that builds all kinds of toxic attitudes. It builds all kinds of unattractive ways of being, you know, rigid defense and fundamentalism. And so we, we actually really don't have an experience of something healthier, except in some of these older cultures that, you know, that were still there. And now in the new local, you can see the benefits of coming together uh, with a conscious embrace of the spiritual interdependence of all life, of the need for community, of the recognition of you know, diversity. Now, for sure, within this localization movement, technologies that were there to really support genuine diversity, genuine autonomy for communities and cultures could be very helpful, but they are not coming out of the system now. In the spirit of, uh, of connecting the dots and looking at the big picture, I mean, we can take it all the way back to the Neolithic revolution, you know, and that's a technological revolution. It's a shift to a new kind of agricultural technology, you know. We have been genetically engineering plants forever. I mean, you, listener, Google Teosinte, T-E-O-C-I-N-T-E. It's the, origina the original form of corn, and it had like four kernels on it. And we have genetically modified this, this uh, life form over thousands of years to be the uh, explosive yellow, you know, calorie bomb that it is today that, you know, agriculture is technology. And I think all of human history is a, is about our relationship with our tools, which are extensions of man, extensions of humanity, extensions of consciousness. And we've always used tools. You know, I, I think there's a, a notion that, you know, indigenous cultures are indigenous because, or, you know, their cultures are based on their lack of technology, but that's not true. I think that their, their cultures are based on the ways that they used their technology and the technologies that they did use, you know, their social technology. Technologies. It's also the technologies they developed, because people tend to all just talk about technologies that just arose as some neutral force, and that it's only about how you use it. No, it's also about what technologies you develop. Where did they come from? Who funded it? With what motive? That's what we have to look at. So it's not a neutral thing when it comes out as something that has been programmed to exploit and extract wealth from the many for the few. Right. And I, yeah, so I was going to add something too. There's actually, we were talking about FarmBot a minute ago and, and FarmBot actually is uh, an open source uh, system. You meaning there's, there's no, you know, copyrights or, or patents on it or whatever. FarmBot is a system, uh, you know, that anybody can use. And it's, and it's kind of funny because the, the FarmBot that's out there right now, the, the, I guess the company called FarmBot also sells it, but they did everything open source, right? So they made it available. The one that FarmBot makes is kind of pricey. So there's another company that essentially just took it and they're selling the exact same thing for about a quarter of the price now. Uh, however, it is man. I think it's manufactured in China, and I don't know if it's of the same quality or not. Uh, but you can get it. It's it's basically a generic version of the FarmBot now because they open sourced it because they said, hey, you know, we're just going to make this freely available to the world. And 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 a lot of people we're we're talking to on the show are doing exactly that, like Jay Sable uh, with One Community Global. They're designing all these blueprints for sustainable type cities. Uh, you know how to make homes out of straw bale huts or shipping containers or um, you know there's like four or five other designs for not just homes but entire communities and they're going down and they're they're detailing exactly which doorknobs to use and and how much you can purchase
purchase them from what website <laughs> and i mean really extensive details on a lot of this stuff but it's all for free online all freely available uh through open source and and so that's the kind of technology that we really like to embrace and talk about on this show is the stuff that doesn't put the copyright on it with a giant corporation. We're talking about the stuff that's freely available for people to use and duplicate. Um, another example would be um, open source ecology. They're a really cool organization that's designing 50 machines, uh, all modular. Kind of, You can build them essentially like a big Lego set right you just get the pieces of steel and you get the bolts and you get the engine or whatever you need you piece it together bam there's your tractor all of a sudden or there's your cnc cutting table or there's your incinerator or there's your whatever it needs to be all the designs are open source freely available you know if you need a tractor all of a sudden you don't have to go to john deere and buy one for forty thousand dollars you can get the you can order all the parts yourself on this modular kit and build the thing yourself for a quarter of the price if you want or you know pay someone else to build it for you but a lot of companies are heading this direction and those are the things we really sort of love to see with people helping people while utilizing technology and embracing the spirit of sharing and cooperation and uh you know just kind of this free giving community um so i just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that sort of thing too well i still have huge doubts about it i still have um a great concern that if we look at what's going on today, there is a, first of all, there is the idea that technology is neutral and that, uh, of course, the farm bot is going to be fine, you know, and especially if you remove it from that for-profit side of things. However, if you look at the honest truth about whether in an ecologically-based economy people could build these tools, I don't think so. I think that if you look at the bigger picture, you're going to be looking at mining that's destroying whole parts of the world. You're going to be looking at the use of fossil fuels. You're going to be looking at also, even when it's renewable energy, we're seeing there's a mass push for giant wind farms. We're seeing solar panels plastering ground. So as I'm concerned, every bit of ground should be alive, either cultivated or wild don't want solar but it's it's also it's the minerals it's the fact that i worry that we have this huge propaganda now for robots that is everywhere it's 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 very scary because i see it also presenting itself as for instance in education you know intelligent people my age came away from intelligent thoughtful people in england not so long ago you know giving talks about how amazing the ai supported education system would be because it could really target the individual child the individual child everything could be adapted now that to me is like the ultimate in insanity and propaganda i'm seeing that targeting children in that way through AI is going to lead to the ultimate in dehumanizing, alienating, and, and you know, deadening people. The, the, the adaptation too needs to be human eyes that you can see. It's how we evolved. We evolved connected to each other, not separated. This, these are all tools that are there to concentrate wealth. They're all tools that are eliminating the need for human beings. This is what's so frightening. 
that we have a crowded planet, we have too many people, how on earth can anyone justify using any bit of mineral or energy to produce any tool that's going to be replacing people? I was saying yes in the in the context where a human society, human society with eyes and ears and with some, you know, it has to be linked to a completely different measurement of progress. GDP can't exist in a human scale society. If you and I drew a border around, you know, a, a town of whatever, 10,000, even probably 500,000, and decided that those people in that 500,000 or even million inhabitant city, they're going to be deciding what is progress and what isn't. They wouldn't be capable of saying, wow, it's gone up. Our progress indicator has gone up. We've got more sick people. We've got more, we've got more hospitals. We poisoned the waters and now we all have to buy it in bottles. We cut down every tree on the mountainside. Yay. <laughs> Not possible. In, Growth and progress. Yeah. And in the same way, they wouldn't create technologies that would in a meaningless way replace people and prevent the interaction between humans, human to human and human to nature. They would be rebuilding the flourishing diversity, the richness. I mean, I know it will sound very quaint and, 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 but I mean, I've, I've just seen so many examples of where animals were used in agriculture. And I just, you know, I lived in a functioning system because all the elements supported it where, of course, it was so much better to have an animal doing the plowing. The animal gives birth, gives birth and gathers wealth from the land from far afield for you. The machine, the, you know, open source, whatever, comes in and dies, and then you have to get another one. doesn't give birth. So there is a, there's a, you know, again, I'm not therefore saying we should only be using animals, that we should eliminate technology. We worked with a lot of renewable energy-based technologies in Bhutan and Ladakh, and at a scale and within, as I say, a human system, we could, and I'm sure, you know, develop technologies. But they would also, by the way, they also would not be telling what kind of doorknobs you need from China to, to Timbuktu, because in some places they'd be, they'd everywhere be different. It all comes down to the system that we're trying to create. And really the system is basically the macrocosmic extension of our, in, of our intentions, of what we uh, dictate as our value system. And as it stands today, this system it's based on like you said earlier made up money imaginary money and this need of of having people to do all these tasks it's primarily only to feed this system of endless growth endless extraction to feed that money system that the number of people employed in the agricultural sector in like 1800 was like 75% and today it's at 2% and you know that that is in many ways because of agricultural technology i mean and you know technology like plowshares or like the cotton gin you know, technology has been has has in its own way been a liberating force in the way that it's been utilized. 
that it's not a it's not a neutral force. I think that's a very a very essential point. It brings us all ultimately to the system that we want to design, not to continue this system, not to continue tweaking it or to tweak one aspect of this system, but to completely holistically redesign this system as an extension of our intentions, to take this monetary profit extractive mentality out entirely and to transition to something that is holistic, that is imminently regenerative, that always at every turn at every aspect of it brings us back to being more and better humans to being more human you know technology that isn't that doesn't become the focus of our lives because our lives are so mechanized right now they're so based on the dongles and the you know tools and things that we have when really they're tools they're tools to help us achieve an end and the end we need to achieve today is the transformation of our social system of our you know human system to one that is ecological to one that is healing the earth instead of destroying it and so there's a term for it and i mean this is that's essentially the the, the, the banner that we wave on this show, and it's a resource-based economy. It's a completely inverted value structure that is based on valuing not currency, not abstract forms of trade and speculation, but on valuing the Earth's resources and intelligently managing them in a collective, cooperative way. So that, you know, even if there is uh, metals that are needed to be extracted from the Earth, you know, there's an, essentially an intelligent survey of the Earth's resources in all regions starting from a localized basis that uh, determines the actual need, not endless want to feed a consumer system, but actual need. And then, you know, determining the, the best materials to be used in the, in the most ecological way in dynamic equilibrium. So that, you know, if there is a, a resource like wood that's needed, you know, it's not stripped and extracted in a way that it's not going to regenerate. But it's ultimately about using these information technologies, using data and feedback and using, you know, the the really incredible intelligent intelligence of machines that we have today to take an intelligent survey of, of our resources in ways that have never been possible before. And in ways that, you know, you like, like the social technology today of targeting somebody, which is terrifying in the, in the construct of an atomizing for-profit system that is imminently individualizing. But that technology, if it is used basically to connect human beings, say to bring two people together that have, you know, unique, uh, connections or to find the perfect teacher for the perfect student, you know, that's on a, in kind of a global way, but really it all comes back to uh, localizing things and basically bringing it to using that technology to create abundance. So no trade is needed. So no money is needed. So we're as, essentially able to be human in the way that we were, you know, for the bulk of our human existence, you know, to be free, to be, you know, loving, to, you know, have this beautiful, creative relationship with nature where we can spend the rest of our lives not destroying Earth, but, you know, creatively uh, healing it and transforming it and making it into this, the, the entire thing into a massive garden that we can cultivate the whole Earth and increase biodiversity and all these things. So I, I got I a uh, contest. One thing you said is that you said there's too many people. And I, I do, I debate this point a lot that under this construct, you know, there people as consumers, there's way too many of them. People as endlessly taking, you know, with no ability to give back, you know, sucking from the environment, hurting each other, competing, you know, squabbling, all of the behaviors that are outputs of this system that are not true human nature. If we had, you know, 8 billion humans, which the earth could, you know, healthily uh, facilitate, especially if we transformed our food systems and, you know, created uh, abundant systems, not scarcity-based systems, which we have the technology and the people power to create. Eight billion humans, 10 billion humans could be an, a marvel for biodiversity. We could be cultivating life on a scale never before seen. I, and I feel 
you know, perhaps from your perspective, that's a, you know, an optimistic or youthful or maybe naive point of view. But I think this is, it's really all about basically realigning ourselves with what is possible. And with really with the, so many of the problems today are manufactured based on this monetary system. That means that is not connected to our resources, is not connected to our earth. And no matter what is fed into that system, its output is destruction, death, dehumanization, violence, murder, rape, all of these things. But if we change that system from the root, all, all of our technology can become a tool to liberate us, not enslave us further. See, where I would, where I feel we're going to make genuine advance is when we recognize that we're not talking about shifting this system to another system, but we understand that it has to entail many different systems, plural. And once we do that, then we also will be looking at things like understanding, you know, people who built the most wonderful buildings out of bamboo came to realize that when the bamboo came from that region, it was strong and worth. But when they tried to import bamboo from another region, it wasn't strong enough. Uh, you come to realize the incredible diversity and the knowledge that humans can develop to see that even in Ladakh, that the mud for buildings, again, that have stood for more than a thousand years, beautiful buildings of mud, essentially, that the mud was different from region to region and that you had to add straw in some and not in others. So once, you know, I think that what you'll see is that the information technologies that we have cannot help with this without costing the earth because you're talking about using minerals and energy and all of the, that has to go into that and not allowing people to develop their incredible sensory and you know, a type of intelligence that, I mean, see, I know it sounds so romantic and I can understand why no one would believe me because I, I sometimes think, is that really true? You know, when I think back of what it was like in Ladakh in the early years, but you know, like I was just going to tell you, it's absolutely true. You know, I would be with someone and they could point to a mountaintop kilometers away and we would be at 12,000 feet and the, on the mountain, you know, 18,000 feet and it would be, you know, a day's walk away. And they could see their animal on that top mountain top. I could only see little specks. You know, there was just an amazing, um, yeah, not, not, not superhuman. It wasn't some kind of magic, but it was just incredible uh, sensitivities and quickness and and I would have friends come out to Ladakh and they would be aware, they would make fun, they had an incredible sense of humor and they would pick up on the gait of someone. I would never have noticed that they walked in a slightly funny way or they would make fun of my voice, you know, and I, and it's just, um, yeah. Actually, it's so funny. I just read an article the other day about this uh, computer chip manufacturing plant. Uh, forget exactly where it was, what part of the world, but everybody's completely dressed in, you know, white. They, I guess they call them bunny suits or something like that because it's just completely white. Covers your entire body, your face, and you're wearing goggles and everything else. And so literally nobody can see any part of your body, including your face. You can't see your face or who you are, but the people literally get to know each other by the way they walk <laughs> at this place. And the, and the managers in particular, like they can, they can pick people out just by looking at the way they walk and they recognize the way they walk just like, just like that. So. That, that's a, that's a silent film, uh, slapstick romance that I, I must make, but I, I just want to say, Helena, I, I don't think that's naive. I believe you. I mean, I, I'm at heart. 
a child of the 70s you know i was born in the wrong era you know i've hitchhiked all over the all over the country all over the world you know and and i seek those human beings i seek those human moments i don't seek a world of alienating you know objects and machines i seek the spirit i seek consciousness because that's all that's true i mean i was debating talking to a friend the other day about you know on a quantum level the material world as we know it doesn't exist consciousness love you know all of these things that are abstract are all that really truly does exist see i don't agree with that i don't agree with that you know because again as we talk about materialism and the material doesn't exist you know the beauty of a tree in its very material manifestation or of these animals that you know very real and yet we understand at a deeper level that of course it's energy and fields of energy but but that denser they're beautiful extensions of a of a matrix that is perfect like i make movies you know movies aren't real but they're more real to me than reality but so i i i again agree i don't i don't i don't mean to disagree and say that the material world is meaningless or anything it's it's incredibly meaningful and beautiful and we are here to give it meaning and and to appreciate it and to marvel in it but i really do see this potential that our tools can liberate us from all the distractions and all of the things that are keeping us from our true human potential. But why do we potential. need those tools when we know that people thousands of years ago were liberated from that and were able to create thriving, beautiful, you know, and again, every building was different. Every single window was different. You know, when we started doing our solar work, which turned out to be very difficult working with modern system, but you know, when it was all hand carved, you see, the thing is, we don't realize that when life was about nourishing life to nourish ourselves and to give birth in a natural way and to you know work with more natural forms of medicine and healing in a holistic way people had so much time they had so much time for music and singing dancing celebrating together they worked a fraction of the time we were I, why was, do we need this technology what's it for that was actually one of my questions that i wanted to ask you about the doc as well is what what was the average work day how many people how how, how many hours a day did people go out in the fields and have to work on average but see, even at the peak working season, the harvest season, when you really have to worry about getting it in, you know, before the snow falls, you can, you can lose a lot of the crop and everything. I became aware, it took me actually years, years. I didn't even think about it. I think subconsciously I was assuming, yeah, life is hard. They were carrying things, mainly the animals were doing that, but still. And then at one point, you know, some tourists came by and afterwards the Ladakhis said to me, why are the Westerners always in such a hurry? And I just realized there we were sitting, having a picnic in the middle of the harvest season, taking, you know, hours. And then I saw a few years down the line what happened when suddenly labor, which is typical of the whole system, is that from the periphery, from poorer villages, people are pulled in as the money economy starts going. And then now the people who are paying the money want to pay less. And so they're pushing people to work faster. And suddenly you get a completely different relationship. But what happened traditionally was they even the peak working season, they worked at a leisurely pace. And, and as it happened, each one of the tasks in the harvest, you know, were different songs. And then one year there was a, a construction going on in the house that we lived in. And I wrote, I started writing back to friends in the West saying that this year was particularly enjoyable because there was construction going on in our house. 
And I realized, what, you know, what that would sound like to a Westerner. And it was because as people were carrying up mud bricks to the top of the roof, there was another song for that. And it just happened right at that moment in the chapel. The monks were performing a harvest ritual and with, with incredible, you know, drums and instruments. And so that was different sound. And then from the field outside, there were three different songs. And when they did the winnowing, they were whistling. And it's just... I mean, this is exceptional, and it was probably exceptional because it was such a harsh environment that they had to develop very finely tuned skills. And, you know, as I say, the status of women was very high. Buddhism had come in, but it incorporated the animist beliefs. So it was a, a very gentle worldview that actually reinforced the gentler way of life and that sense of interdependence. But yeah, I don't know why on earth, how you would justify the need for the technologies when I agree with you, I believe that we could happily feed and coexist with 8 billion people. I believe we'd be happy. I don't think it's ideal. I would like to see more wilderness. I think it would be nice if we hadn't quite reached that number, probably. But I also see that right now, if we understand the potential for human beings to heal nature in a way that no machine will ever be able to do, we need lots of people. Even in the wilderness now, there has been such intervention because of climate change and, and toxic pesticides, by the way, a very important part of what's going on. So don't fall for the carbon argument, which is totally corporate, to brought in by corporations to reduce everything to a tradable commodity. The carbon argument in climate is very, very dangerous. Are you talking about the carbon trading, the carbon trading aspect of it, I'm or just carbon? Even the focus on carbon has come because it's been big business sitting at the table, mm -hmm. planning. And, and, and again, I want to say, I know some of those people in the corporations. I knew Morris Strong who brought in the whole, essentially corporate framing of the environment by bringing everyone together in Rio in 92. He was well-intentioned. This is not, but as you are a CEO and multimillionaire and you have to contend with climate, the last thing you're gonna look at is the fact that those entities are too big and cannot support healthy diversity, healthy nature. And that's again, that's true of these technologies as well. Those corporations. They think they can just, just devastate biodiversity and reduce the, you know, the amount of life in an ecosystem that literally like I was, I was, I was staring at a mosquito biting me earlier and I was angry at a second. I, I was angry and then I thought, no, you feed the birds, you feed, you feed the whole web of life. You are necessary. Even the most unpleasant pest is totally necessary to the whole web of life, that it's all completely interdependent. So to reduce it to just carbon, oh, if we can create a machine that can suck carbon out, we can it pollute forever. But I just want to say my vision of the future is not uh, an industrial vision. It's not 8 billion people living in 8 billion suburbs. It's beautiful localized dispersal integrated within nature. You talk about the creating the mud bricks and the, the construction of the house. It brings me back to creating earthships in Taos, New Mexico and you know building these houses out of recycled material and out of dirt 
and creating these, these sort of fusions of old technology or old ways of life integrated into the earth, dug into the ground, but also utilizing, you know, renewable energy. And, and thinking about the future of renewable energy is not more extraction. It's like I, I saw, I was staring at algae at the, at the ocean the other day and, and I held it up to the light and I said, oh my God, you're a solar cell. Every leaf is a solar cell. You know, and I saw uh, some kid somewhere in the world created solar panels that, that go into a window that are made out of algae. And we can turn light into energy. We can do what nature does, that the future is biotechnology. Like cannabis is technology, high technology that has been evolved over thousands of years. You know, our food is high technology. It's biotechnology that does give birth, that does replicate. I want to give a, a shot at something to kind of answer your question, I think, or at least, at least try to answer your question about why, um, you know, people essentially are hesitant to go back to a lot of these cultural uh, ways that have existed for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I think it's, it's, it's a kind of a two part thing a lot of the time. One has to do with uh, people. One, I don't think they really understand uh, how much really community and solidarity uh, contributes to situations like that and making them livable and even, I don't want to say easy, but thriving. Yeah, you, you can thrive. I think people, people look at subsistence agriculture and they think like, oh my God, all of a sudden we're going back to like a third world lifestyle or something like that. When in reality, I don't think it has to be that way for a lot of people in, in a lot of ways, especially if you incorporate a little bit of modern comforts and technology in there. Um, but people don't see it that way. People people don't want to go and work in the land a lot. And I can't speak for everyone, but there's a lot of people out there who simply don't want to do that. And I think Peter Joseph, I summed it up pretty well. I went and saw Peter Joseph's one of new movies and uh, people were asking him uh, pretty similar questions to that too. Like, why can't society go low, lower tech, right? Like, why can't we go back to a lot of these cultures of subsistence farming and, you know, kind of a more communal way of lifestyle and put technology back in the bag? And essentially that's what he said. He's like, once it's out, you can't put the technology back in the bag. That's that's the problem. The technology is here now, and the people have become used to utilizing this technology in their lives to where it's going to be very, very difficult for them to abandon that way of life and go back to some sort of, uh, you know, kind of working the land lifestyle in somewhat. However, over a, a, a period of time, I do believe it's possible to influence be, to people to kind of go back more towards that sort of thing. But there's always going to be people who don't want to essentially, right? And 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 okay, but I think right now, what I, I I completely agree that certain types of technology would mean that we don't need to go back to what I experienced in that. There's no need. We can go full circle. Well, we can go full circle, but we wouldn't necessarily go full circle because we wouldn't go back to as low a tech existence as what they had. But what I really worry about with what you're saying is you've got to look at the situation that we're in right now and the push to pretend that the technological path has to keep moving, that once it's out, you can't put it back in the bag, and the propaganda for robots, there's going to be a big UN summit now on food in September, it's going to be pushing regen through robots, linked to drones, linked to satellite, to monitor carbon, it's selling the idea that people don't want to farm, they want to be on the screen. It's extremely dangerous. It's going to eliminate 
the livelihoods of hundreds of millions of farmers. And there are hundreds of millions of farmers protesting. But does the corporate media let their voices out? No. When you say once technology is out of the bag, you can't put it back, then you're saying that DDT, nuclear power, you know, toxic genetic engineering can't be put back. Of course it can. We can realize that we've made a mistake with certain technologies, and we can do the same right now to say, let's push the pause button. Let's not go rushing into robots taking over more and more livelihoods. Let's now look at where the drive comes from, who's promoting it, who's in charge, Let's have civic society involved in a discussion and a debate and honest accounting. There was an honest accounting, sort of honest, that went on maybe starting about eight years ago. It was called YASTAD, the International Assessment of Agricultural Science and Technology for Development. That was commissioned by the UN and the World Bank and 53 countries were involved. There were, it was a three-year study involving something like 450 people. They had to add the word knowledge later on because as they were working in the so-called third world, they realized it wasn't always scientific knowledge, it was local farm knowledge that was very valuable. The result that came out led to the study being squashed because the study showed very clearly we cannot continue going in the same direction. And that central to that is technology replacing people, the path ignoring local knowledge system, ignoring the way that things have been used for sometimes thousands of years. And you know, we're in a world right now where herbal remedies are being you know made illegal. And we know that many of them have fabulous functions, and they're replaced by more and more patented for-profit changes. Now, I'm sure you're dealing with things that are, you know, not patented, but unfortunately, they tend to support the dominant path. So that's where we should all be saying, let's push the pause button. We're not saying certain things can't continue afterwards, but we're saying let's have an honest assessment. Let's really recognize how dishonest the assessments have been. We've had scientists for decades and decades, starting with Rachel Carson, gave rise to the environmental movement, talking about DDT, saying our science has become too narrowly reductionist and it's linked to powerful tools like chemicals that can have a far bigger effect than we ever realized. So if you read my book, Ancient Futures, you know, my conclusion from years of seeing the changes in Ladakh was the two things we needed was an immediate shift to more holistic, interdisciplinary research and knowledge and decentralization. And there was a big demand for both in the 70s. But what's happened is that big business manage very often through good intention in the sense that people in those corporations were seriously concerned about toxic pesticides and so on. But because they have been allowed to frame more and more, to frame the entire picture, we have gone to even more narrow specialized research, whether in genetic engineering, pharmaceuticals, 
around viruses, whatever, it's gone more and more narrow, more and more for profit, linked to bigger and bigger accumulations of wealth. And we're seeing this, you know, we cannot for a minute separate this accumulation of wealth in fewer and fewer hands. And in every single country, the gap between rich and poor widening as we speak from that bigger picture and technology is central to that. So don't make technology some separate neutral thing that's growing by itself. Let's look at which technologies really could be in the hands of real empowered societies. And we're trying, but it has to be multiple systems. We're going to need to develop an umbrella of protection where we mutually agree which is why we need the communication technologies to share through films and exchanges like this urgently, a global reach to discuss honestly about what's needed and what's going wrong. But we should actually be ideally overnight virtually eliminating these technologies in the service of profit. I see the inverse actually. There needs to be a reckoning across the globe, and the, but the the problem itself is not innately the technology. It is the profit. The profit needs to go. The profit mechanism that makes every piece of technology that makes even medicine a weapon. Everything this system gets into its hands becomes a tool to advance its purpose, which is to turn life into death. Profit. So. You talk about automation, you talk about robots and, you know, the fear of millions of hundreds of millions of people losing their livelihoods because of automation. Well, it, it just brings me back to the Luddites. You know, a lot of people think Luddite just means anti-technology. The Luddites weren't against the machines because of because they were, you know, scary or, or went against nature or anything like that. They were against the machines for taking their livelihoods away. They weren't against them in principle. They weren't against the machines just for existing. And I think most of this technology, uh, you know, maybe it's not completely neutral because it is subject to human value systems, but the, the technology itself just isn't the problem. It's the profit that moves it. It's the, it's the underlying value system. It's the programming of the machine. It's what it's used for and how it's used. So uh, automation can liberate us from work. You know, you, you talk about how these people are being, you know, made obsolete where we don't need people anymore. Well, we shouldn't have people do these jobs. You talked earlier about, you know, these uh, using animals for agriculture. We shouldn't use animals for agriculture. We shouldn't cause any unnecessary strain or duress on, on, a, on a being, a living thing when we don't have to. So technology today, like automation, you know, with coupled with a complete change in our value system and our socioeconomic structure that determines what it's used for, how and why, can, can liberate us all completely from so much of the work that we don't want to do. So we do have the ability to make art and sing and dance and invent and create and push uh, our human development and our evolutionary development in a good direction, not in a direction that is regressive, that is, you know, moving forward in this mechanistic crawl to convert all the land in front of us into the tracks for a train that, that you know, burns the forest to fuel it. I think if you eliminated profit, a lot of the technology would simply go away simply because it's not necessary, you know? Absolutely. And, and, and I think that's, that goes hand in hand. I completely agree with, with almost everything that you're saying too. And I think we're, we're, we're yeah, we're, we're basically on the same page, I think about 99% of it, you know? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think, you know, see the, the thing is right now to say, 
we're just going to eliminate profit. You know, it's not going to happen. We have to really look at what we can do as a society. And and I think that the information exchange, from my point of view, deeper dialogue between less developed and more developed parts of the world is vital as part of understanding what's going on. So we need communication. We don't need it to be super rapid. I was you know, so in favor of the reality tours that we organized people from the global south coming to the north to see with their own eyes, to discuss, and the other way around. Right now with COVID, we can't do that. We should be using these tools of communication. Yeah, and ideally those tools of communication would not be in the service of profit now. They would be in the service of how do we come together to create an umbrella of protection for life, for human rights, for the rights of nature, but understand that it, we're moving towards localized structures where only local knowledge can be deeply embedded enough in a holistic way to work with nature in the, in the long run. Zachary, correct me if I'm wrong, that sounds a lot of like what uh, Murray Bookchin kind of kind of talks about in, uh, lo what is it, M municipal, was it municipal? Uh... Democratic, democratic confederalism. Or, or municipalism and communalism yeah, yeah localization municipalism essentially right right he, he talks a lot about that sort of stuff right well he did he's dead unfortunately i knew him and uh yeah it's very sad there were quite a lot more voices around uh before and the thing that happened with murray is that he became very anti-spirituality and the, and there was a big split and i would argue that that was only because he hadn't experienced that amazing indigenous way of living that is deeply spiritual. Um, but he was seeing a type of new age spirituality that became very apolitical, anti-political. And that, that was my biggest uh, critique reading him is that his he he described the birth of hierarchy as the role of the shaman as this thing that doesn't exist and uses power and manipulate. He was wrong. He's wrong in that. I agree with him like 90% of the time, but that's an essential aspect that he just doesn't understand. And I have a very hard time talking about the importance of shamanism or non-physical phenomenon or the spiritual, which has, you know, you talk about the Tibetan Buddhists, just about everything in their canon that they've developed through spiritual practice is just now being caught up to by quantum physics. So it's like the spiritual realm is the true avenue to human excellence and to human understanding, to, to dipping into the well of collective unconscious to understand the truth of everything. That's where all visionary understanding comes from. That's where great discoveries come from. They don't just come through, you know, turning chemicals into other chemicals, <laughs> you know. But but I think I think ultimately in in an attempt to sort of reconcile these two beliefs than myself, because I, you know, I, I am a, a mystic, an esoteric person I, I i don't feel you know i, I don't know I, I just don't even feel like i'm this individual person i feel like everywhere i go i'm every life form that i meet you know like to be in nature is to just to melt away to be nothing i have nothing to say in nature and i have everything to say in you know in civilization because it's all wrong <laughs> it's all wrong and and we need to communicate everything obvious to people because it's so not obvious because we were completely adapted to this wrongful mutation of what it is to be human when to be in nature it's like ah i can just be because this is this is what i really truly am and i think really the path in my life right now because the last two years i really was focused on spirituality i thought if everybody understands their essential oneness and interconnection then uh 
we'll get it. We'll ascend. We'll break this cycle of materialism and all that. But I, my views have changed and they haven't changed in that that's my deepest principle and that's my deepest motivator more than any ideology, more than any belief system. That is where this comes from, is, is from spiritual knowledge through gnosis, through you know uh, shamanism. But ultimately, the, the place that I'm at right now is in seeing the way to change people to get them to the place where they can appreciate that you know, is to meet their needs. And I think the way to do that is through basically getting people to understand the greatest illusion in our world is money, that it doesn't exist, that it's keeping millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, billions of people in deprivation, kept from their true nature, you know, to say nothing of their true nature, it keeps them from life. It keeps them from life because they don't have this this unphysical you know this uh, value system that's confined to a computer that literally doesn't exist so i think it's far more likely to get people to understand that money is not real and that that's the only thing that keep that's keeping them from this life and that technology can be used to liberate them from almost every single problem in the world today that labor can be eliminated that that our, our sickness and and disease and all of these things can be eliminated through this synthesis of Basically, a, a, a democratized, socialized, open access form of new of a new economics, a resource-based economy that uses technology. I mean, if, if you're in selling people on this new world, on this future vision, this ancient future, this Terence McKenna's term, the archaic revival, which is what I see the true flower of our technology bringing us to a point where we are completely liberated from all of the all of the uh, distractions of labor and all this stuff that we can truly be ourselves and sharpen our true senses and connect with our true uh, nature. I just, I just want to say I really appreciate you coming on the show. I'm having a, <laughs> I'm, my, my blood pressure is elevated. <laughs> my heart rate is going. I'm really, I, I feel it's a great privilege to have this conversation with you. You're, you're, you're just the perfect person to have on this show at this moment. And I just, I sorry, think let me, ahead. let me clarify what he meant really quick when he says the distractions of labor. I think he's more talking about the monotonous, just endless activity. Uh, David Graeber summed it up as bullshit jobs, essentially a activity for the sake of nothing more than activity in the economic system because it requires it. Yeah, but that's also, let me then just point out the enormous difference between the farm in the local food world and the farm in the global system. So young people now, ever larger numbers, are actually finding that leaving their desk, you know, sitting all they day. They gotta get on the farm. Yeah, and sitting all day is And then is they'll torture. understand, then they'll know. It needs to be smaller scale linked to a market that has a relationship and it's an almost always more localized market. And that's why please help to talk about that because the organic, now you have enormous monocultures of so-called organic and all kinds of bullshit propaganda about Half that. Half the stuff at Walmart's organic now, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's really, and it's, but the whole point is that when you shorten the distances, the market pressures towards diversity. And on that diversified farm, particularly when you include animals, you actually have every single day a different form of work. And, and you have more people, so you actually do it in community. The experience of that is like the antithesis of being like a machine in some giant monoculture where the machines do liberate you. But the liberation, and I'm not saying that we all need to be farming or that we should all grow our own food, but there's a larger and larger number of people, also very wealthy people, who are now finding that it's the most joyful thing they've ever done is to start farming in that way. And I also want to add, I want to add to that, that you keep in mind 
that we have found after many years experience that using the national currency and God forbid, you know, now in COVID, they're forbidding actually using money, which makes it much more difficult for local small farmers and so on. But actually using the national currency has been the most effective way of getting these things going. When we started trying to start an alternative currency, they haven't worked basically. But interestingly enough, using the current you know, dominant and unhealthy national currency manipulated in this fake money world. But right now to start building the actual structures of an alternative, you can use the national currency. And that means that if there's a crisis or if people are more enlightened a year or so down the line, they could just drop that and start their own currency or bartering or whatever. But it's a very interesting fact to keep in mind that becoming idealistic and saying no money and only pushing the idea that money is a complete fiction. I don't think that's going to go down so well. Well, what we're talking about, essentially, we're, I don't think I don't I don't think I agree with Zach when he says money is a fiction 100 percent. I mean, I agree that like it's sure it's fiat. It's kind of it's a made up thing that people have essentially made up. But it, but for a lot of people, money is a very real thing. Also, you know, when you're getting evicted from your house because you don't have enough money, which has happened to me, by the way, money becomes a very real thing. And then you're sleeping on your friend's couch and and you're like, geez, I wish I had some more of this this thing we don't believe in called yeah. money. Um, but it's yeah. <laughs> you know, but but essentially, I think I think, and and I agree with you also, Helena, that money has been very very instrumental over the long term in humanity and in the in the development of the economy. But also, I, what we want to experiment with are systems that function, say, like within the current economy, right? Uh, but more and more rely on themselves as self-sustaining units that don't have to interact with the outside economy, with an outside yeah. uh, currency system, money, whatever. You know, we'd, we'd like to experiment with communities that are more self-sustaining. And f for me, it's the basis would be regenerative agriculture as well. I highly, highly value using regenerative agriculture as a basis uh, to ex attempt experimenting with some of these communities that would use simply no currency whatsoever. Uh, the term that I like to call it, I've heard before is universal basic services, right? Or universal universal basic goods and services where essentially you could just be part of, say, a cooperative. Like, I don't know. Have you heard of um, Mondragon in Spain, the large Mondragon cooperative? Mondragon is far too big, far too big. But on the other hand, they're also still profit oriented, right? If if you could have a if if you could have a cooperative that's not quite so profit oriented, it's much more to do with scale. It's much more to do with scale. You can have cooperatives that are fine, but it's the scale. It's where do the resources come from? Who are the people who are being exploited or employed or working in a fair way? Much more to do with scale. And I just hope that you don't just say regenerative. And I'm trying to get the word out. Please use more holistic language. Talk about smaller scale, more diversified, smaller scale, more diversified local food economies, you know, more localized place-based. That's for how you respect the diversity. But regen is coming in now and is covering everything from a small permacultural farm to a giant 
you know, a huge monoculture, which, and it's being, well, it's I being think, I, I think regenerative region. agriculture doesn't really coincide with monoculture very much. I, from what I've seen, most it of the, does. most of the regenerative it practices does. that I've seen aren't, aren't using monoculture though. Like maybe there's some of it, but yeah, I mean, maybe we can distinguish it a little bit more too. And, you know, like what, like you're saying, emphasize the localization, things like that, you know? One of the vital realizations now is that smaller and slower is the way to go. Smaller and slower, and it's all relative. And the idea that things have to be scaled up is linked to a system that came out of this, you know, toxic extractive um, system from the beginning. So please don't always think about scaling up, but think again, slowing down, scaling down. If you can just sort of, um... I don't know. Give give us some closing statements and um, a message to uh, to our listeners and to the world. And it's just been such a great conversation. I really thank you so much. And we've covered so much ground here. But um, yeah, just whatever whatever thoughts are still in your head. I know you can go go like this forever. So. Well, I guess I should do, I should do what I never do, which is to encourage people to come to our website, Local Futures. If you're at all interested in localization, we are the people. We've been doing it for forty five years. And we've been coming at it from a global perspective based on global experience. We are also coming up with an action guide soon, another new little film. And if you haven't seen our film, The Economics of Happiness, I hope you will. And my book, Ancient Futures, and the film Ancient Futures, which lays out this contrast between more localized, diversified, adapted cultures and environments versus the monoculture that's being imposed around the world. So I really hope people will follow our work and and I, I hope that they'll be willing to take the time because the speed is, is pushing for a narrow reductionist perspective. And this also relates now to many of the new issues like regenerative agriculture, like veganism, even Black Lives Matter, so many issues around COVID as well are being perceived in a very simplistic sort of slogan-like way. We all have to go deeper. We have to be more humble and realize that we're dealing with complexity at every level. And yeah, I would just urge people to, to please look at all our stuff and and take the time to think about it and then compare it to their own felt experiential knowledge. Fundamental to the error we've made as a, not as a human race, but the path we've been pushed on that's taken us away from nature, has taken us away from our own nature. And I, by the way, I was very thrilled to have a long conversation with Gabor Mate, who completely agrees about that, that we evolved in these intergenerational communities closer to nature. So that's now what we have to recognize is how do we get back on track again? How do we actually get back on an evolutionary track? Technology has been responsible for creating monoculture and it's technology linked to profit. But you have to look at the actual technologies that were created in that way and start thinking about what could technology or what would it look like in the service of nature and human nature?
Helena said it wonderfully when she said, this is a toxic extractive system that we're operating in. Absolutely right. And we do need to avoid reductionist movements. But the thing is, we're already operating in a reductionist manner. We're not furthering anything but our own demise by insisting on either sticking to the for-profit agendas of corporations or trying to digress to pre-modernization ways of living. We're only turning a blind eye to the answer that's right in front of us. Technology and ecology, married together in a conscious way, can alleviate the systemic issues that we're facing because of the nonsensical and downright lethal logistics of globalization. Though we do have the ability to move past all the issues that are holding us back and move forward together to reach the same goal, equality, sustainability, abundance. Imagining what technology would look like in the service of nature and human nature. This is exactly what this show and this movement is all about. That's a resource-based economy in a nutshell. Using technology to recreate our social system, to increase human well-being and realign ourselves with our environment. As humans did thousands of years ago without the technology we have today, living for the bulk of our existence without money and totally imbalanced with our environment. We've got to end the destructive waste of globalization and decentralize our economy. But we recognize the need to go further, not just to change the scale or speed of such a system, but to change the whole structure from the ground up. The monoculture we fight is a symptom of the monetary system that reduces all life to a bottom line of dollars and cents. And markets, which mathematically lead to inequality and competition, which makes any technology a weapon for leveraging advantage. With no built-in protection or value in life or incentive to pursue abundance, which we already produce and keep scarce to appease that system. If we utilize our true technical capabilities and pursue efficiency, equality, and smart, sustainable resource management, we can transcend the conditions of scarcity that led us to compete in the first place. We can't reduce our problems to any one fix. It takes expansive systems thinking and the imagination to see past the limitations which are imposed by the market to meet the challenges of our global crisis. I highly recommend anyone skeptical or inspired to learn more to check out our episode, A Moneyless Society, Five Steps to Save the World, to see how localization is one of five structural changes that will get us to a thriving world on the other side of scarcity, a new system altogether. We have answers to all of these concerns and we'll continue to address them on this show, but these discussions can't move forward if we can't think in new ways and truly open ourselves up to new possibilities new ways of thinking, new ways of working together, new approaches. The old way and the old approach is, will, will lead to certain death. I mean, there are, there are so many multiple crises that are the consequences of this system, but there are more solutions than there are problems. I'll say it again. We must evolve as we did every step of the way with nature and technology. We have tools that can make our lives easier, more efficient, less wasteful than ever before with almost no perfunctory need for humans to labor repetitively to afford to eat. We can use renewable energy and automation in a sustainable way, hand in hand with permaculture and reg regenerative agriculture. And we have a social responsibility to do that, to use every tool in our reach to meet this unprecedented challenge. Because if we don't transition in time, we will go backwards. And our tribal archaic revival will be trying to grow crops in a wasteland with irradiated water and killing each other with the lowest technology of sticks and stones. 
We support the work of Local Futures and anyone striving to fix these complex systemic problems from every angle. It's going to take all of us working together, finding our row in the garden and tending it till there is such an abundant overflowing of awareness that the new world overtakes the old.